Hi, everybody. We are on Season 5, Episode 11, and I have Matt Ram back with me. Hi, Matt. Good morning to you. You keeping well? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, yeah. The same. Rude health, I hope. <laughs> never, never could be too sure when you get to my age, but, you know, as far as I feel okay. Thank you for asking. Good. I was going to say, well, the sun is shining, um, it's cold, um, but um, I've got I've got some annual leave coming, so I'm very, very oh. excited about that. So it's, thank it's you so much time. for sharing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so today is quite a personal episode with uh, with me and Matt, and um, I'll take you all through it a bit more. But just so you all know, very sorry from the beginning. Um, today we're talking about why I am declined by all insurers for personal income protection insurance. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So to start things off, I'm not shy about sharing my health conditions. I think most people know at least two of them that I uh, I publicly share, and I share them to try and challenge people's mindsets of what um, these conditions are, um, whether or not that's someone who's a consumer, maybe some medical professionals, advisors, hopefully maybe some underwriters at times, maybe. Um, but um, this isn't, you know, an episode where I'm specifically calling for like any specific changes or anything, just maybe to to hopefully spark some ideas. And um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to quickly tell everybody my health conditions and a little bit about them and how they um, impact me. And then I'm going to hand over to Matt a little bit. But I do want to give like a little bit of a disclaimer first about what Matt is doing and what he's saying, because I have told Matt to just be brutally honest with me and he's not brutal in any way whatsoever. So he is going to obviously approach it in a, in a lovely way. But I just want to be very clear um, in, in terms of like just giving a statement to people, because I wouldn't want anybody to think that uh, Matt's being like particularly harsh or, or anything like that. But let's start off then with my health conditions. So main ones then for me to talk about are hypermobility syndrome, generalized anxiety disorder, underactive thyroid, postural tachycardia syndrome, and autism. I've listed them in the order that I was diagnosed with, actually, because then it kind of helps me to uh, to think of the timeframes and everything. So in terms of hypermobility syndrome, I do not have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, just in case anybody wonders that. I was diagnosed at age 12, so that is 24 years ago. Um, after having numerous breaks and well fractures and sprains and people not understanding what's going on not understanding things like it's, it could sound really daft but as an example like sports days at school I was doing the exact same actions as everyone else but not going anywhere you know I can't run it's, it's you know it's, it's very difficult for me to do that I have tried a bit as an adult and I, I did do okay with it but I'm still it's, it's not really the best of things for me but in terms of hypermobility scoring, I am full nine out of nine on what is known as the Baton score, which is um, the analysis of nine specific joints to see if they're hypermobile. I have had my heart scans and different tests done to make sure that there was nothing going on in terms of my internal organs. Um, luckily, touch wood, there not, nothing was at all. And in terms of problems with the hypermobility syndrome, I I think a fortunate thing from being diagnosed from such a young age is that I've been able to adapt my life very specifically around it. Now, people might wonder, well, well, what does that mean? And yes, we can maybe understand why that would have an issue for income protection because you're having to adapt your life. But my main adaptations for my hypermobility syndrome is that I'm not going bungee jumping. I'm not jumping out of airplanes. I'm not going ice skating. 
Um, like I said, I did try running for a little bit. And then I thought, you know what, this is just too much of a risk long term for my, well, short term for my, my ankles, um, if I fall over or just my ankle, but um, long term, my hips, my knees, you know, it's, that's not good for someone who's a runner without high mobility syndrome, less having that. So I decided, obviously, to stop doing that. Um, I don't see if I was like a massive runner or anything. I literally did it for about a year or something. And it was yeah, just just small 5Ks. It wasn't anything excessive. Um, small 5Ks, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> bragging you again. I was going to say, well, when you've got Alan who does triathlons, for me, it was like, you know, it was stop-start 5Ks as well, I have to say, you know. but. <laughs> Well, sounds good to me. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of I, I do stuff like Zumba, I do Pilates, Zumba. Obviously, I'm very bendy. So dancing is something I, I am very good at. I still have to be careful, though. There's certain moves I won't do because I know it puts my ankles at higher risk. Um, I do Pilates, which is obviously really, really good for me. That one, though, is, 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 is tricky. But obviously, I can't do yoga because um, you're, not, you're not meant really to do yoga if you're hypermobile because it doesn't it, it makes the muscles even more loose, which isn't the it isn't the goal in the long scheme of things. But in terms of any other adaptations I do, um, so I have things like wrist supports that go on my desk to just cushion my wrists against the wood of the desk. I, I have this very random rubber device, which sounds strange, but I put that on top of jam jars and things like that. And it helps me just get a bit more grip on things like that. It's a good idea. It's, it's really, really helpful. I have to say, even Alan sometimes is like, they're, they're brilliant. I'm trying to think of what it looks like. I will try and think of something at the moment. There's something I can I think it looks like, but I don't think that's really appropriate to share. Um, <laughs> so I won't do that. The mind boggles, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you afterwards. Um, and, um, and, you know, I make sure that if I have a pen, I use the right kind of pen. You know, it's got a specific, like, little, um, maybe more cushioned towards the end of it rather than one that isn't. So nothing extreme you know I understand my body very very well and I haven't had touch wood any significant injuries since my mid-teens and you know obviously that's a, a really really positive thing um in terms of the and obviously Matt as we go along you can if there's anything I've missed or things you want to ask me about if I may yeah, yeah. because um you know I, I'm, I'm I'm feeling off what you're saying and if we, if we went through the, the, the list that we have, then I might may forget some points. So it would be good maybe if I could comment yeah. um, after after each section, if you want. Yeah. Do you want to comment now on the high mobility then? Yeah, if I, if I could. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Let, let's just go back to absolute fundamentals here. And people listening um, will excuse me, I hope. Yeah. Um, just to repeat the, uh, the blinking obvious, if I can use the term, that in, we're talking about income protection today, and that's a policy that is designed to pay out if somebody is unable to work through accident or sickness. So that is really the, the inability to work through, we'll talk, we'll talk sickness today as opposed yeah. to accident, I think it's, it's more pertinent to yes. the conversation, um, is, is what an underwriter or any risk manager for that matter will will be looking at and they'll be looking at the um, obviously the medical history is key but also occupation yes. is very key because uh, most policies are the inability to follow your own occupation that differs particularly with things like total and permanent disability but that's not what we're talking about today yeah. so if we look at hypermobility syndrome um, my, my questions really would be and th this is I think I'm going to approach the whole conversation around the way I would disclose or, or give some ideas about how to disclose to the insurer. Yeah. 
So that's not just the, the end client, the customer, but that's also to IFAs or people who are selling policies um, full stop, really. So I've got hypermobility syndrome. Some of the questions, that some of the issues that would be raised in an underwriter's mind would be the, for a start, it would be the, the, the actual diagnosis of hypermobility syndrome. You've, you've already commented on the, the Bateman score, which um, you've got nine out of nine. A key area here would be for the underwriter to take uh, EDS, the you know, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, yeah. out of the equation altogether. Because as you, as you probably, I'm sure you know, Catherine, that, that hypermobile H yes. EDS um, is generally a pretty, it's a progressive disorder. Yeah. And um, it can, it can be pretty nasty to say the least for the, for the person suffering from that. So a question I would, would throw is how, how do you know that you don't have EDS? That's a really tricky one. And that's something that I think would be, that's the, that's the challenge for the underwriter, you see. That's why, that's why I ask it. Because I, in terms of like, a, as in, a, in another way, so say like, you know, we, we speak to a lot of people who've been told they have, you know, because I always say, to, if anybody comes to me for any insurance, and I'm just taking away a bit from income protection here, but um, if they say to me that they have hypermobility syndrome, the first thing that I say, and my team are trained to say is, have you ever been told Erlos-Danlos syndrome? Because of how it changes what the the vision is obviously um going forward absolutely yeah now the difficulty that i think sometimes presents itself and i don't know the exact obviously details but as far as i'm aware erlos danlos syndrome itself is done through some form of a genetic test it or can be can be yeah now i as far as i'm aware as again i we seem to see a lot of people who have been told that they have hypermobile EDS purely from going and seeing their GP and them seeing that they and showing that their joints are hypermobile. And it seemed to become a thing for a while where there was quite a lot of people we speak to and were just like, well, have you had any extra checks? And they're like, no, I just went and saw my GP. I was told that obviously I've got these hypermobile joints, which means I have hypermobile EDS. And that in itself is quite, I've always found as quite a concern. I think it's frightening. It's the, yeah. it's the, it's the absolute bottom line because how people um, would see their future mm. from a health perspective, um, you know, you, you get on to Google or something similar or the society, the EDS society. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it can be, could be to a lot of people pretty damaging to their mental health, to be perfectly honest with you. Absolutely. Well, in terms of me, I don't have stretchy skin. Yeah. So people with EDS, so, um, you know, they, they tend to have a skin that is obviously very, very stretchy. Obviously, I have had my heart checked. So there is nothing in terms of my heart in what it looks like. Obviously, yeah. I'm, I'm being careful my words because I do have the postural tachycardia syndrome. So I'm just going to say what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the EDS, so the reason that, so, okay. So the reason that I would know personally is that when I was first diagnosed, um, I was fortunate to be covered under my parents' private medical insurance. And so I did see someone lo locally, but then what they also did is they, um, I was sent to the two professors of hypermobility syndrome um, in the country. So that was um, Professor Rodney Graham in London and 
Professor Bird in Leeds, I can't remember his first name, and they were the two foremost specialists in the condition, and I saw both of them and they confirmed it. So for me, I feel pretty confident that I have hypermobility syndrome and not EDS. Great. And I think I think to um, those uh, IFAs out there, it's it's important to try and extract that type of information, if you can, from the client for very obvious reasons. Yeah. I think that, I mean, again, an, an underwriter could look at it, look at this as well and say, this is for income protection, my dad. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the challenges that you had, quite, quite nasty um, situations that you had when you were a, a, certainly a teenager, yeah. um, you know, hypermobility syndrome, Catherine, you'll know this anyway, but it generally affects children and young people and it will mm-hmm. get better as you get older. Yeah. And reading, uh, well, bear in mind the conversations that we had, I have not had really any symptoms requiring medical treatment for a very long time. Would that be right? That is right. I do still get, um, I'll be truthful, obviously, I do still get discomfort and I do still sometimes get pain, but I don't have, you know, the permanent back pain no. that I used to have. Don't need painkillers for that from, from, from memory? Uh, well, I did used to have some very nice painkillers when I was younger. I to say. Um, my mum has a, a wonderful uh, memory of me having some very, very high dosages and her coming in and massaging my back when I was in bed while I was singing If I Was the King of the Forest from Wizard of Oz at the time. This is when you were young, though. I'm this was when I was young, yes, very, very young. Um, but no, um, no, the only painkillers that I've had are just your standard painkillers, and that's more sort of if there's been headaches. Yeah. Okay. Well, in, in which case, really, you know, um, and not to take anything away from the condition, uh, but I think that sounds fairly standard life uh, life treatment to me. Yeah. If that's without, um, you know, taking away from the hypermobility itself. So, okay. So, so effectively, from looking at this from a risk perspective, we have a diagnosis. We have a very firm diagnosis of hypermobility syndrome solely. Definitely not EDS or HEDS. Yeah. Um, you haven't had any issues that are worth noting from an underwriter's perspective for a very long time. Um, I think you're, you're open about your medical history. I think you have said recently on a podcast between me and the that you're 36. So I hope I'm shocking <laughs> podcast. Bear in mind that we, you know, it looked very well for 36 and mother of three children and a, and a and a, and a top business person, I have to say, either which way. Thank you. So, and you haven't had problems for, let's say, any any issues for at least 18 years, give or take? Yes, roughly, yeah. Right. From So from a, a, an income protection perspective, you, you, you have hypermobility syndrome. Um, would I be concerned about that? Am I concerned that it will stop you doing your job? Now, as people will no doubt know, our listeners, I mean here, um, the deferred periods. So that's the that's the period of time when um, uh, an insurer uh, will not pay your claim, and you you look after yourself effectively. Um, and although there are immediate payment benefits out there in the market, the more traditional insurers, if I may, not little the, the dear friendly societies here, but would often look at, look at deferred four weeks. So in mm. other words, you, you look after yourself for four weeks, then the insurer starts paying your claim after four weeks. Then you generally have deferred 13 weeks, so that's deferred payment, by the way, yeah. uh, 26 weeks or, or even 52 and I'm, 
when I was but a lad, there was 104 as well, but oh. um, I'm not sure if they, they still exist. So again, looking at this risk, I'd be looking at it and saying, right, okay. And for the sake of argument, let's say we're looking at deferred 13 weeks. Yeah. So just over three months. Um, is hypermobility, given Catherine's occupation, which is primarily sedentary, is that right? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no, no, I know, I know. I'm going to be yes. shocked for that. <laughs> uh, no, I am. Um, yes, I do have a, a, I do have a standing desk, but I, I'll be honest and say I've not used it as much as I should do. But yes, okay. um, my my occupation, I am sat at a desk. And and um, and uh, you you'd be a hundred percent. You don't do any manual work, is really what I'm trying nope. to say. No manual okay. work at all. All righty. So given that, and we're looking at a period of, of um, D13, just over three months, I would have said from a risk perspective and taking it on the condition on its own, um, I would have said that was not a, didn't present a risk. Yeah. Okay. I think, as I say, that is with the insights that Catherine has given me. Yeah. Um, and no doubt, I mean, Catherine does this. A, it's her own body we're talking about here and her own health. But B, she knows what she's doing from a medical perspective, particularly noting the job and Cura's uh, name in the marketplace. But uh, so I'm getting into fantastic disclosure is really what I'm trying to say for me to enable me to look at the risk present that's presented. Um, it, those times of disclosures are pretty important to say the least. Otherwise, you're going to get underwriters saying, oh, don't know about this. Um, I don't know. I haven't got the information. Therefore, sadly, decline. Yeah. I was going to say, it's, it's interesting as well, because, you know, I think what's... Um you know part of this podcast as well is you know I'm, I'm going to be obviously giving you my medical information you're kind of assessing me as an underwriter from you from your knowledge and from what you would do and how you would see it Matt and then yeah. I think what's quite important is that I share what we see in the market 100 percent 100 percent and um, so generally in the market the majority of insurers if there is a hypermobility syndrome disclosure they will decline income protection um there are some um, that might consider if someone has hypermobile joints, but not hypermobility syndrome. And that is tricky. I think one of the biggest things that we should say as well here at this point in the podcast, because um, it, it probably nicely follow on to the mental health when we speak on that one next, is the two key claimable areas for income protection that the highest claims are from like back pain, what's known as musculoskeletal conditions, and mental health so if you have one of those conditions already that's obviously something the insurer is more cautious about because they're saying well actually this is our in all likelihood this is the, the one of the highest areas that you're going to claim on and you already have this um so i think that's probably why we we have that situation um but you know, th there are some things that I think would be quite interesting to sort of chat about as, as we go along with that, Matt, um, in terms of, especially when we talk about like the mental health and sometimes what can happen with the policies um, and what can be offered, especially for people down the, down the mental health route. But it is interesting, I think, you know, especially to hear what you say, you know, in terms of like for me and in my situation, why, you know, I, I, I very much doubt that I would, ignoring all my other health conditions, if we just took the hypermobility <laughs> syndrome, I very much doubt, because of our experiences, what we see on the market, that I would get income protection. And 
at just as say because we, we generally just tend to see if it's hypermobile joints it can be a possibility I think there was someone that we were able to because they they had hypermobility but purely in their knees so that had a knee exclusion so I think that's important to be clear of as well is that you know if you do have it and you get the cover this is all to do with personal income protection as well. So this isn't talking about, you know, potentially income protection except through companies or provided through employers. Um, but in the personal income protection space, you know, you would be getting exclusions related to, you know, potential joints if you were able to get it. Yeah, I, I think I, 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 the proof is in the pudding. And I think that's important to say, Catherine, and you, for, you know, you, you have you have the proof of the insurer's reactions to it. I think if it was me, I would be saying, why are you declining? Um, and uh, sometimes rather than insurers um, who put pressure on their underwriters to shift cases from their mm. desk, let's be honest about it. Um, that will cause them to really think about the risk that they're looking at. Um, and potentially change their minds. On some cases, that's not necessarily yeah. for everybody, but on some cases. Now, my experience would tell me that the case that you mentioned where they've excluded the knees, mm. what, what are they, are they, what, again, I don't know the background to the case, to be perfectly honest. No, of you. course. Um, but that smacks off. They think that the knees could be dislocated and cause a problem that way, or they would get arthritis in the knees. Yeah, um, would be my take on that. Um, now, if that individual hasn't had any problems since they were children, I would say that's a pretty. I would say that was a tough decision, personally. Mm. But um, you know, every, everyone to their own. And the important thing is is, is that insurers quite rightly have their own uh, underwriting philosophies. Yeah. And um, also risk parameters. And what I mean by that is that they, that, you know, some people will, some insurers will look at the more uh, difficult risks um, from a, uh, an income protection viewpoint or a mortality viewpoint for that matter. Yeah. Um, but some won't because it's their risk appetite and, with, and the way ultimately they, they price, in other words, where they set their premiums. So um, I'm never, I've never been one for saying, oh, you've declined that and I've got, plus 75 or, or, or one and a half times the rate or whatever from somebody else, because I'm always, um, I always know that it very much depends on their risk appetite, which is set by their premium levels. So, yeah. however, okay. So that's my particular view on that particular um, hypermobility syndrome. Yes, absolutely. So let's have a chat then about the generalized anxiety disorder. So age 20, started having panic attacks I had um, two bouts of agoraphobia within so the first time was around the age of 20 the second time was around the age of 23 I believe I'm trying to think of the years and everything is how I was at different times um yeah. so obviously um a good long time ago in terms of my um, anxiety disorder it's one of those questions that I always find really hard you know when people say you know when was the last time you had symptoms you know it's it's very hard with somebody who has anxiety or depression or another mental health condition to say that because there's also normal anxiety I always use the example of saying, you know, like when I'm trying to get three kids out the door in time for school and us not be late, that my, I get a bit heightened, as does everyone else around me, you know, and, and Alan does. Alan wouldn't cast that as him feeling 
being like having an anxiety disorder, I would cross that as, you know, as me feeling a bit anxious, but then it's like, well, so what do I say? Do I say that that was my last symptom of anxiety? Yeah. Anyway, I'm going a little bit off tangent with that, but that's um, something that is very difficult to answer. Um, maybe it's food for thought sometimes. Just to interrupt very quickly there. I think yeah. the, the key, and I would only maybe focus in on the word as an underwriter, but it's the disorder. Yeah. So it's an, they're looking at for an abnormal Whatever that means, yeah. I have to say, reaction to a given situation. Yes. In the children's school, I would say it's completely, uh, getting anxious about that's completely normal. But it's yeah. so difficult to say what is an abnormal reaction and what isn't. It is. Different for different people. Yeah, it's, that's the thing. It's so subjective. It is. So subjective. And then as well for people, you know, especially if they go and see medical professionals like GPs, you don't know what's being written down you know it could be you know they could sort of like say they could write down oh um, she felt a bit anxious the other day because you know the kids were just the kids were on one and she was you know felt a bit anxious um or it could just be oh um she had anxiety the other day and then there's no context to it so there can then be a bit of worry as to well is this going to be seen as a non-disclosure um so it, it is really really hard but for me um things my main areas of issues um are times where I feel that I'm not in control which obviously I imagine some people will in some ways maybe have a giggle at because I am someone who's very much someone who likes control Um, and it's just my personality type more than anything but essentially it really presents itself when I'm going into things like public transport Um, so on a train or maybe going on a plane or something a situation where I feel like I can't easily get out of it that's when it really presents itself it's it's very tricky now as well for me when I'm, I'm saying things because I'm trying to sort of say well it would maybe be this or that but actually now that I know and we should talk later on because I've been diagnosed with autism I know that some of my reactions aren't my mental health it's actually my autistic traits so in terms of as I say that those main areas are things where I'll say well my mental health means that I, I really struggle to go on a train or an airplane but actually it's actually my autism and sensory overload but it's now because my autism has not been diagnosed for so long it has become a mental health as well what well, not become a mental health condition because autism isn't but it's a mental health condition has developed because my triggers and sense sensory awareness wasn't um i'm trying to think of the best word for it um it wasn't looked after let's put it that way So it's kind of like a bit of an entwined thing, this one, but we're going to take them all as they are. So so basically, let's look at it as in, in some ways, let's assume I don't have autism, Matt. So this is just purely mental health based. So mental health based, I don't like planes, I don't like trains, and I don't like traveling on my own. So as an example, you know, and this is something I've spoken to some people about, not everybody, um, but I may as well just tell everyone, I tell everyone everything, really. Um, I don't like traveling to London. Obviously, I'm in the north. I don't like trying to. I don't find it an enjoyable experience. It's about five and a half hours, whether or not we do it by train or car. I definitely would not do that on my own. It is something I just would not enjoy in the slightest. I obviously I would feel very much alone, and I would I'd probably feel unsafe. And there's a number of, you know, again, I, I will share most things, but not everything. There are a number of traumatic events that have happened in my life that mean. I don't necessarily feel safe going long distances without somebody that I feel safe with. At the same point, though, I know a lot of people who are absolutely fine traveling and doing everything. But I know that there's also a lot of people who don't like traveling on their own. So it's kind of like, but it is my mental health. But for some people, 
they wouldn't class it as mental health. They would just class it as, well, I just don't like doing that. But for me, I think in, in all intents and purposes, Matt, let's assume that I'm somebody, obviously, I've lived with generalized anxiety disorder for ooh, 16 years. Um, I had a couple of bouts of agoraphobia, the last time, obviously, quite a long time. Well, both times a long time ago now. I am on a mild antidepressant. I'm on 20 milligrams of citalopram. I've been on that for quite a long time. The, what else? I think that's probably about it. Oh, yeah. And obviously that I don't like traveling um, on my own. There we go. That's probably it. Okay. The, um, I think to paint a picture here, again, I, I, I would um, just reiterate, but not to the length I have previously with the hypermobility. Um, we are, the underwriter will be looking at this in the context of the anxiety disorder, stopping you doing your job for, to use the example, um, three and a bit months or more. Okay, so that's what we're looking at here. I think it's important just just to remembering um, Catherine what you said historically. But am I right in, in that um, you've historically had some cognitive behaviour therapy and counselling? You mentioned Citalopram. Yes, but you've never never seen a psychiatrist community mental health team or, or ever been inpatient is that right right I will go down my list of questions that I ask people and so I can be very clear um so yes um I have had cognitive behavior therapy and I've had hypnotherapy as well I did see a psychologist um when I was close to first being diagnosed I have to say that was one of the worst experiences that I've ever had I have seen a psychiatrist, but not for this. Obviously, I've seen it for my autism diagnosis. So I've never seen a psychiatrist for my mental health. I've never been an inpatient, never self-harmed, never attempted suicide, not had suicidal thoughts. I'm trying to think of any of the other ones that you were just mentioning. Yeah, no community mental health teams, nothing like that. It has just purely been me, GP, some medication, the hypnotherapy I did privately, uh, cognitive behavior therapy, I think I did private. Yeah, I did that privately. I saw a psychologist and then I privately saw a psychologist because um, unfortunately for me, um, the one that I'd seen through the NHS wasn't a positive experience, but the one that I saw privately was was very positive. Excellent. When did you last see a psychologist? Oh, God. Um, I would guess from what we've said, we've talked about historically, it's somewhere between... It'd be about, it must be... 2005 to 2008, so 15 years ago, give or take? It would be 10 years ago, actually, because... Oh, sorry, um, no, no, 10 years ago. Um, no, it'd be more than 10 years ago. It would be, oh, beginning of two... Beginning, around the beginning of 2011, because um, that was when I became pregnant with my first child. And whilst I was thrilled... I was also terrified. So around that time, so up until, so some, so probably, yeah, I'd probably say 10 and a half years ago because it was around that time that I was having the hypnotherapy and also saw the, um, saw the psychologist just to make sure that I was, it was just, it was just talking therapy basically. Yeah. I mean, that's a life event though, isn't it? It was a big life event and it felt, you know, with everything that I've got going on, I, it was very much a case of like, I'm not good enough to, to do this, you know, kind of thing. I'm not going to be strong enough. And, um, and there was lots going on at that time. I was just finishing, just finished my, um, just finished my PhD as well. Goodness gracious. <laughs> I don't know. So just a few things. Yeah, I can say that again. <laughs> Righty. Okay. So um, going back to the 
generalised anxiety disorder and particular comments that I think an underwriter would be uh, focusing in on would be that your the, the comments that you made about travel yep. and so on and so forth, um, public transport. Now, the straight question is, does that stop you in any way doing your job? No. The job that you will be would be insured for. No, I was going to say, um, I think it's probably quite useful to bring in at this point that obviously, as I say, I did my PhD. So about, I handed in my PhD three, you know, a week later, I started my job. And I have not had a day off work since for any of the conditions that we're talking about here. So I handed that in. Uh, it was, I think it was around the July of 2000, June, or June of 2010. So for the last almost 12 years, the only time I've had off work is when I had horrendous man flu. Well, that's probably terminal for income protection then. That's a joke, by the way. I was going to say, I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking what? <laughs> that, 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 pregnant, that pregnant pause then. I thought, oh no, I'm going to put right in it. No, no, no you got me. Oh. I was thinking, what? What did I say wrong well, then? <laughs> also, to be fair, that's belittling um, horrendous man flu as well. I think it was the man bit. Yeah. To, uh... <laughs> no, no, it's absolutely right. I was going to say, oh, I'm, I'm stopping, horrendous. And to any listeners as well, if I'm offended. <laughs> no, no, no. I was thinking, can I say? man flu is it okay for me to say man flu oh, I'm just gonna say it I'm just gonna say exactly. it I get it so it's me yeah. I have it I have a woman flu there we go <laughs> <laughs> women flu yeah. brilliant um okay now this one this particular um disorder is very interesting from a underwriting perspective there's a lot of positive points here and I would also although we didn't particularly want to cover autism at this particular point. Um, some of the, uh, Catherine will go on to talk about her autism and what she's doing uh, mm. to better understand the condition a little bit later on. But I think that, that I hope that that would have a very positive impact actually on this, on this general anxiety disorder that mm-hmm. you suffer from. Yeah. By the way, I'm, I could completely, could be completely talking um, out of order for which I apologize no uh, I hope you're very much right <laughs> I, well indeed yeah I, I certainly hope it does although it's a little bit early doors at the moment of course um, at, at this moment in time there's there are a lot of positive things here as I said a minute ago um, that really I would think that I would probably exclude this at this particular point in time mm. Okay. Um, why um, it, it it is continuous? Yeah. Um, which you've which you've talked about. Um, the, the the interesting thing is here, and I know you and I have had the debate, is that you are, what you are doing. I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is actually looking after your mental health. Yeah. And there's always this situation where why do people get penalised by underwriters for looking after their mental health to those who don't? Yes. And it's it that is always a in fact I'm not entirely sure I know even after 42 years of underwriting the actual answer to that. Um, but I would say that there's been a, a few things going on. Um, for instance, we'll talk about pots a little bit later on. Recent, relatively recent diagnosis there, the autism. Um, recent, relatively recent diagnosis there that I would probably exclude but look to review in a 
I don't know, it's a difficult, these review periods are postponed, yeah. in other words, I think is really what I'm trying to say maybe for, to people, just postpone COVID, not for your whole policy, by the way, as at this moment mm. in time, but, but, but um, postpone reviewing an exclusion for maybe a year or two. Yeah. That is primarily because, let's, let's look at... Um, the postural tachycardia is an interesting one, POTS, in other words, but the, the recent diagnosis of autism and far more importantly, forget the actual diagnosis of autism, is what you're doing about it. Can we it's just positive, go back? But that's, that's, that's why I, I think at this moment in time and on balance, even for a, a D13, I would probably, I would exclude, but I wouldn't say that it is something that I would review. Sorry, Catherine. No, 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 I was going to say, is this, because I know we've just sort of jumped towards the pots. Are we just talking about the, if we just focus on the mental health, though? Yeah, yeah. In, in terms of the mental health. So you're taking the pots into account with mental health? Well, as you... <sighs> I know it's hard to distinguish them all, but I was sorry, thinking if we just kind of go, right, if you had someone who didn't have pots and autism and all this other stuff going on, so someone with a generalised anxiety disorder, yeah, yeah. Okay. what I would probably um, anticipate that we would see, um, and I think this is quite an interesting one, if I refer back to the high mobility in, in a little bit as well, but if yeah. we were looking at purely the mental health, the anxiety disorder, I would expect to see income protection offered, but with a mental health exclusion. Yeah. 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 I, I would, it's an interesting one. I probably would as well. On yeah. Balance. yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I, I think that in some ways, you know, depending upon the question sets and everything, I actually think, it could be quite straightforward to get the insurance as long as people are, are aware that there would be that exclusion there. And what's quite in interesting for people to be aware of is that if you have something like a mental health exclusion on an income protection policy, with some insurers, they discount the premium because, as I said earlier, the mental health is usually such a high claimable condition that because you're having it excluded, they will reduce the premiums lower than what you know the, the standard premium is because of the fact that you are obviously having quite a a big area excluded from the policy. Um, but something that I'd like to, to potentially pose, Matt, and I don't think it, this is one for us to necessarily um, focus too much on on, on this episode, um, sure. but it's interesting, is that obviously saying that mental health conditions, someone who's looking after their mental health, who's taking positive steps, will probably get income protection with an exclusion and a cheaper premium. But on the other side of things, somebody who's maybe got something like hypermobility syndrome so physical condition, who's taking steps not to do something that would, in a sense, cause them to maybe have time off work, doesn't have the same kind of option. You know, so with quite a lot of people and a lot of different physical conditions, you know, people actively do things to make sure that they don't put themselves in. You know, like for me, I don't want to do something where I'm going to break my leg. It's, you know, I've heightened that risk. You know, it's, it's something yeah. I really, really really want to avoid yeah. um but you know no, um, absolutely. Yeah, so you know it's you know it's, it's just something intriguing to maybe i'm just i'm putting that out there for underwriters to maybe have a little think about yeah the, by the way it's, a, it's an interesting one i'll just throw this in as well that often when or, or let me say i i would like it to see it happen or hear about it happening it's certainly something that um, I encouraged my underwriters to do when I was in corporate world. Mm. Um, and in fact, I did it myself as well with, with um, an, another part of the, uh, of the uh, techie team, and that would be the claims people. Yeah. Um, I would, or my underwriters would come up with a, an exclusion wording and say to, to the claims people, 
This is what I'm intending it to do. This is what I want it to do. Will it do that? Yeah. Will it actually do it? So the wording is is very important when the, in, within these yes. exclusions. And why I've gone off on a tangent slightly there is um, hypermobility syndrome. Mm. Are we saying that nobody will exclude it? Um, the reason the reason for that, I mean, I can, I would have to do some pretty in-depth technical reading mm. around it. But what else? If you ex- an insurer excludes hypermobility syndrome, we damn well know. <laughs> excuse my damn, mm. um, but we know that it's not um, EDS. Yeah, we know it's not EDS. Okay, going to what? What would the claims? People, would, would that work in a claim situation if you excluded hypermobility and you um, broke your leg, just to use an example? It's a difficult one. It's a very, very difficult one because I think it, it's, it's, if anything, it comes down to the situation, doesn't it, in, in some ways. And, you know, and again, that's why I'm thinking we can't focus on it too much on this episode. No, so we'll go no, around in circles, won't we? But it's like, it's one of those, no, 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 but it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? Sort of like going, well, it, yes, it would be excluded, but then it seems unfair if it was excluded if they were in a car accident. Oh, indeed. And, you yeah. know, the, the, the leg was broken because, I mean, that's just one of those things. You know, at the same point, if somebody has, I, I don't know, and I'm not saying this the case, I'm certainly not speaking on behalf of all hypermobile people, but say for me, if I suddenly went skiing and I broke my leg, I, from my personality, I would be thinking, well, that's kind of my own fault because I did something that really, for, for me and the way that my body works with height mobility, so not everyone with height mobility, but my own personal body, I know that I should never go skiing. <laughs> it's just not yeah. something that I should do. So in that situation, I'd be kind of thinking, well, fair enough, then I'd understand the insurer not paying that because I, tr- I, I made a decision and did something that put me at heightened risk. However, um, obviously, there's a lot of people with height mobility syndrome who would potentially be going off skiing, would be absolutely fine and, and not be the same as m- myself. So I understand completely that it is not an easy situation and you can't then. Th- there's only a certain amount of individuality that can go into these things, I think. So with me, I can't ever go skiing. Someone else with height mobility might be able to. Y- you can't kind of have a rule book that works I, I don't know I don't know if I'm saying it right in a sense you know everybody's body is completely individual and it's very difficult to make it generic enough to I work think, for everyone oh indeed yeah I, I, I suppose what I'm trying to get at here and again I'm just thinking of time and, and things yeah. like that, is is that um creating non-automated exclusion wordings mm is something and tailoring them to a yes. degree is something that can be used in the underwriting of the more unusual conditions for want of better yeah. expression. Um, that's really what I'm trying to get at here. Now whether I, I know that underwriters are under a huge amount of pressure to to shift cases. Um, but you know, I, I would say really for the particular case that I'm looking at in front of me, if you want, or the lady I'm talking to, um, if you're really going to explore every avenue, then that should be something that that underwriters, with their claims people, I would add, um, yeah. should, think, should think about doing. 
I think, you know, that, that's where I'm kind of coming from. I'm yeah, here. absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think the next two um, conditions, because obviously you say timing-wise, you know, we, uh, we've had a, a good chat on some of these. Um, yeah. You know, I think we can probably both say in general for underactive thyroid. So um, underactive thyroid basically just means my thyroid doesn't work as fast as other people's. Um, I take 50 milligrams of levothyroxin every day just to try and make it do its thing that it needs to do. Um as far as I'm concerned, Matt, probably similar to you, I can't see this as being something that's going to be of a massive concern to underwriters. I, I, I don't think so. No, um, the, the the key is keeping it, uh, keeping your thyroid levels under control. Um, your doctor, your GP, should be taking regular. I don't mean that by that every week. Um, mm. Thyroid you know, test your thyroid levels to see that everything is okay, um, and. Again, if I go back to, is this going to stop you doing your job for three months? Mm. I, I, you know, I, I'm giving you history. You don't, you know, you've, you've had one period, yeah. I believe, where you've had to change your treatment. Yes. Uh, a long time ago now. Um, hold on, either which yeah. way, um, you, you know, it, 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 it wouldn't cause any alarm bells running for me. Okay. Brilliant. Um, postural tachycardia syndrome. So this is a, a quite an unusual one, um, I think. Um, so uh, I was diagnosed with this last September. I ha- I've known that I've had it for pretty much forever. Um, so for me, postural tachycardia syndrome presents itself um, in a number of ways. Um, in that the main things are that if I stand up too quickly, I can go dizzy. And being very clear about that in terms of going dizzy, it can mean that um, I get black circles in my vision and I can't see um, for for a few seconds until it all settles back down again. Um, I um, what did I do? I so, so in a situation like that when that happens, and obviously I, I don't think that necessarily this will be taken into account by underwriters, but um, just for for general knowledge for people. So what I simply do in that kind of a situation, if I've stood up too quickly, I'm going dizzy. I will just drop to the floor in the sense of I'll crouch. I'll do like a superhero pose, you know, <laughs> where they suddenly land on the floor. I do that. And um, and that is my way because then it means that it stops. I have fainted twice in my life because of it. Um, once was when I was a teenager. So I was 15. And I stood up and fainted. I didn't drop to the floor. I kind of stood there thought, thinking, oh, it'll just pass. And I woke up in a completely different situation, obviously. And then the second time it's happened to me was after the the birth of my third child, very directly after his birth. Um, And um, it had been sort of like, it had been both a very quick birth. um, Well, it's basically that, well, it was just, it it, it kind of, I was in a long time in the water bath thing. It was very warm. I hadn't eaten for a long time for good, you know, 12, 16 hours the delivery itself was very quick because that is one benefit of hypermobility syndrome. The babies come out of nice course, and fast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and all was done, all fine and dandy. Everything was fine. I got up to go to the bathroom and just dropped. Um, and obviously my body had been through quite a lot at that stage. Um, they're the only times that I have fainted. Um, the other thing with this um, is kind of like connected with it. I think is connected with it, Matt, you might correct me, is that I have sinus tachycardia, um, which I think is all, all of it's interconnected. So that side of it is that my heart goes very fast at times. So if I'm in a stress situation, so harking back to the public transport and uh, airplanes, 
Um, or if I'm exercising, um, my heart goes very, very fast. If I'm doing um, a Zumba session, and so I'm 36, um, and I am six foot and a little bit heavier than I want to be at the moment, so it's around about 12 stone. Um, and when I exercise, my heart rate can very easily get into the 180s. Now, I've had my heart checked completely um, through exercise, stress tests and everything like that. And my heart, um, it does go fast, but it goes fast at the right. I'm going to hopefully say this the right way, Matt. It goes at the right rhythm that it's meant to. So the pattern of my heart and it's, it's the rhythm and everything like that is exactly what it should be. It just happens to be working at a higher level than most other people's in that would be my age and build and everything like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the, the key issues there for an underwriter would be looking for any structural issue yes. within the heart, which has been excluded, of course, so that's yeah. fine. Also, rhythm disturbances as well can obviously cause a problem with things like strokes and so on and so forth, and that is not an issue either. Yeah. Um, you know, it, on the basis that I think you said that, it, that any increases happen at the same rate as a normal person. Yes. Yeah, confirmed by a cardiologist. And in fact, yes, a cardiologist, um, you know, again, that's just something I, I, I can't um, get too worried about. Um, can I just ask, in terms of the, the POTS, you, you did mention, I think, which is a very important point for an underwriter, in that you, you, you feel that you've actually had it all your life. Yes. What, what made you suddenly go for it? Um, Get, it, get yourself checked out in, in September 2021 where you diagnosis. I'm just getting fed up with people not listening at times. That's the whole thing, you know, with, with a lot of the conditions that I have. It's, it's... Oh, you meant me then. No, 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 people, no. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, no. Got you back. <laughs> um, no, um, <laughs> no, um, no, um, I, I'm trying to think. There was an, oh, so in all fairness, I've been tired. And yeah. that's an extra thing with POTS. So POTS is that you you do sleep, you do rest, but you are constantly tired. Um, now, again, this comes down to, I, I'm giggling at this and not at the condition or anything, but it comes down to the thing, well, why wouldn't I be tired? I run two businesses. I have three children that are 10, seven and four. I've got parents who are very ill that I help to look after. Um, I'm bound to be tired regardless of the pots, you know, in a sense. Yeah. And, yeah. but, you know, it was just a thing of like, right, I'm, I am tired. What is this dizziness happening? You know, in, in, you know, why does this dizziness, you know, cause it started, oh, that was it. It started to happen a, a bit more over a couple of months. I'd been getting a bit more where I stood up and the, the black circles were coming into my vision. And I was just like, right, I, I just need to get this sorted once and for all. And um, private medical insurance. So reached out, and um, luckily, there was someone near us, a cardiologist who's very um, keen on this area. And I have been put on some medication. I don't know if I'm going to say, is it, is it Evabadrine or yep. maybe? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, yeah. I can't remember what the dosage is. It's not, a, it's, it's like a starter dosage um, yeah. to try and see if that helps. Um, and, um, but yeah, I was getting that. But to be honest as well, I had, and uh, I have tried a few times to um, be vegan. And um, I've, See, I think I'm finding out that for me, in terms of my body type and my ability to prepare um, foods and times and things like that, being vegan just doesn't suit me at the moment. And I stopped being vegan around that time and it actually really helped. 
um, in terms of the dizziness and everything. Um, and again, disclaimer, I'm not saying that you can, you know, you have to not be vegan to stop it or that being vegan is going to cause it or anything like that. I'm talking about just me and my personal experiences, in my body and how it reacts to, to different things that are happening in my life. So, yeah, so that was it. Yeah, I had a couple of months where the dizziness was more. Okay, that, that's great. It, with, with POTS, one of the um, complications, if that's the right expression, is, yeah. is brain fog and cognitive problems can I assume that there is no sign of those well again I don't mean to be too um I, I don't want to make light of the condition at all um and again this goes into a little bit of my autism as well it depends and I don't think I have brain fog I think I have three young children who don't stop talking <laughs> and I find it yeah. hard sometimes to remember some things I, I genuinely don't think it's I don't think it's that I, yeah. I don't think it's brain fog I think it's the kids but at the same point I can't say that I remember absolutely everything with the same accuracy that I used to when I was younger but again we'll talk about that possibly a bit more in terms of the autism okay all righty well look thank you for that in terms of um the income protection side. When I when I was first um, thinking through here, I was looking at the the diagnosis of September two thousand and twenty one. Um, I think, but a, but a key issue for me is that you think you've had this all your life, um, yeah. and it has not impacted your ability to work yeah. very very hard and have three little lads. Um, I, I just Alan. remembered something as well. So sorry, the reason sorry, again, mate. no, the reason again why I think I've had it all my life is that when my heart rate is going really high and, and all of this, um, so maybe that's one of the signs of tachycardia, I'm not sure. But basically when I was younger, they had said that I had childhood asthma. But actually the sensation and the feeling that I had when I was younger is exactly the same as the feeling I get now when I exercise. And and the reason that that might not people might think, well, why wouldn't you have known that or monitor that more? So when I was diagnosed with hypermobility syndrome when I was 12, and because of the injuries I was having, the guidance at that age was to not do any form of exercise at all. Yeah. So from yeah. the age of 12 up until my um, early 30s, I didn't exercise. And that might sound that might yeah. sound strange to people. Um, but yeah, I didn't dance because of the, you know, the potentially all the risks and everything. Um, I say I didn't dance obviously when I did do some clubs and I did dance at clubs um, but you know I didn't do like full I didn't do cardio I didn't do any of that kind of exercise for all those years for you know almost a good 20 or so years so I've only just started to realize that some of the symptoms that I feel now through exercise actually mirror what I, what I experienced in childhood so sorry Matt I, that was just a, an extra thing as to why I thought all my life no no that's all right I, I think again you know when we were talking about the, the the hypermobility um I, I just i sound like a stuck record but it, i think it's very very important is to to bring these things out yeah if and when people look to apply for particularly income protection insurance um because otherwise you're going to be leaving the underwriter with a uh, in a difficult situation of them not really knowing the full picture yeah um, and full pictures on income protection are very, very important, particularly with mental health, particularly with things like um, postural tachycardia, POTS. Um, and also, let's be honest about it, also musculoskeletal, yes, we've talked about hypermobility, but generalised musculoskeletal issues as well. Yeah. 
um, you know, it, it, it's important. I know it's quite difficult to think of what and how, how an underwriter's head works. I'm not quite sure myself, to be honest with you. <laughs> but you can guess, uh, you know, Catherine, you mentioned it already. You can get questionnaires that do delve down a little bit more into the questions. Medical questionnaires, sorry, I'm talking about here. So musculoskeletal disorders, for as an example, mental health um, disorders, as an example. Yeah. Um, and, and that, if, if you're unsure quite what to ask and how... how um, uh, how to delve down those those will certainly give you a few clues yeah. um but yeah try, try rather than just simply say pots yeah i would delve down into it more and give the underwriter as more as much information as you possibly can absolutely that, that's me that's me said on that one if i may no that's fine i mean for me in terms of what we see we would generally be expecting postural tachycardia syndrome to be accepted for income protection and for it to be a bit of a premium increase now that is to say that obviously we are talking you know that there's there's been the the investigations have been done everything is being managed well in terms of symptoms and everything like that that's that's what we would generally see from our research does that kind of match what you would think Matt yeah generally I think um I would again I think here things like dizziness and it doesn't apply to you and your job but Dizziness can be an issue if, for instance, you have a manual job, say, let's say, working at heights, mm-hmm. driving, doing some heavy machinery, so on and so yeah. forth. Um, so, yeah, in your in your um, scenario with your occupation, then, yeah, I, I tend to be think there isn't too much of an issue here. Key, though, for me, I would have to say, is that you, you've, you've had it all your life. Yeah. It wasn't just a recent diagnosis of only six months ago. Yes. Um, you, you mentioned, or I took, that you were on a trial with um, Eva Bradine. Yes. Um, so we're not necessarily at the end of that particular. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. How do I put it? Well, it's yeah, a new treatment, isn't story? it? Is that yeah. right? I don't yeah. know if that's the right word. Um, on, on pots, yes. And we don't quite know maybe what's going on. Um, that's that's the only thing. But on the basis you've had it since you were a youngster then I would feel dance are more comfortable. Brilliant. Okay, so the last one then, autism. So I will give a bit of background about that. Um, so obviously this is all linked in with my um, mental health diagnosis as well that I, I now know. Um, but um, so I've been diagnosed with autism uh, classed as level one, uh, which was traditionally um, diagnosed as Asperger's, but they don't diagnose Asperger's as its own condition now it is just classed as autism and Yosemo on the scale um, or they might say high functioning autism and again they, they don't specifically say that anymore because it seems to be that feels that there's um, a negativity um, to people who aren't maybe considered to be high functioning you know what, what that kind of negative connotation of that wording is um, the yes yeah, so I was diagnosed uh, so basically this was something that I had done privately and it was to try and help me, I think, understand myself more. So when I was just going back a little bit to mental health. So when I was first diagnosed with my mental health in um, 2020, and I saw that psychologist, and this does feed into why I said I didn't have a positive experience. There was multiple things that weren't positive about it. But one of the first things when I went into the sessions was I said to her, I think I have Asperger's. Because obviously at the time that was specifically the wording then. And she actually just laughed and said, no, you don't. And then that was the end of it. And I didn't have the confidence to ask anyone again 
And, um, and what was lovely is that I've been, I was speaking to some people within the industry recently. It was about, well, it's been about a year ago now. And, um, and we were chatting away and they were asking me about like, well, what happens for people who are autistic when they're going for insurance? So I was going through it all and everything. I was saying anything. And as I was chatting to them, I haven't said something like, oh, obviously I don't have autism, but I have this thing called hypermobility syndrome. So I can appreciate how it can be quite tricky sometimes to know what to do with insurance. And uh, this was all done by Zoom because obviously we're in lockdown. And yeah, they kind yeah. of, they, I don't know how, but they both kind of like looked at each other on the video and I don't know how because they weren't together you know, in separate places yeah. and I was just like what was that look and they're like well and they said not always but sometimes you know high mobility syndrome is linked to autism yeah and I said mm-hmm. well I was like I have thought about this um but and I was like and I don't want it to you know because I was really worried then about seeming as if I was like negating or trying to jump on the bandwagon of the people I was speaking to having autism and then me saying oh yeah I can be one of you guys kind of thing which I obviously mm-hmm. I didn't want to be um but in terms of my autism and how it affects me so um obviously some of it it's going to sound terrible because a lot of it is not going to sound very modest um so I'll, I'll say the positives because I really really do want to focus on the fact that autism can be a positive and not necessarily um, negative. So for me, the positives are that it's given me a very analytical mind. Um, I remember things very well. So going back to the brain fog, Matt. Um, <laughs> so, you know, what can happen is, and sometimes, and it's just something that with me, but it can, I think sometimes, I want to say freak people out. And I don't want it to sound like as if it's something freaky, but, you know, I, I remember distinctly at university once I was chatting with someone and they were like, oh, no, we didn't do that course together. And I was like, yes, we did do that course together. And I'm like, no, we didn't. I was like, yes, we did. Because I was sat in this row and you were sat six rows behind me. Then this person was sat, stood in front of us and the, the room and I, I described the room and everything. And everyone around me was just like looking at me like I was really strange. And I made a joke of it and just said, oh, I've just got a really weird memory. Um um dreams I can literally tell you my dreams probably like over a good two hours and everything and like Alan's always a always always a having a bit of a giggle with me he says right he goes if you're going to tell me about a dream let me get a cuppa because <laughs> and he'll say because you'll start it off kids sorry going right in my dream it was the day of the third of June and the spring air was nice and there was a mist on the floor and I'll start it off like that and it's true I I have an incredible amount of knowledge in terms of detail um it helps very much in terms of uh, the business. And um, I, the way that I describe it is kind of like I have, I feel like I have about 20 different routes of conversations and things going on in my head, um, which in itself is really positive in terms of fast decision making, also seeing flaws in systems and in communications. Um, that's a, a key thing that I can do. Um, but it also can sometimes get me into a little bit of trouble because um, for me, and it comes down again, this then feeds into a little bit of the social and the mental health side of things. Um, so if, if there's a project in front of me and we need to plan something, well, I've gone down very, very quickly. I've gone down 20 different routes or so, figuring out which ways are going to work, not going to work. And then I'll say, oh, right, we need to do it this way. And that can make it seem like I'm very abrupt and blunt and that sometimes it's something I've had to work on very specifically and this feeds in obviously as well Matt into the terms of like does it affect your ability to work and things like that sure it doesn't in a sense affect my ability to work but it does because I I have to watch myself and how I communicate to make sure I don't put other people out so yeah. if I yeah. have, you know, if I've done all this and but other people are saying, but this project idea and it's one that they really love, but I've seen why it won't work. I have to not shut it down, 
I have to make sure that I talk about it in such a way. And it, it sounds awful, but to help them go down the route to see why it won't work in the long run. Yeah. To, to, and, and it's really hard because it's hard because I don't want to seem like I'm condescending. It's hard because um, I then also instinctively, my instinct is to not waste time. But I have to in my head because of the fact that I'm having to make sure that everyone else catches up with me. And, and I, that could sound really conceited um, and it's not meant to be, but it is the way that my mind works. Now, in terms of work and social aspects of things, um, it feeds into, again, sort of like going into the, some of the symptoms that I have mental health wise, like not wanting to go to, to London on a train or a plane. The reason I don't like trains and planes is because it's, um, my senses are being overloaded, but I never knew that it was due to my autism. And I just felt that so a, a big thing for me to be, again, open about is so, so that people understand why we've kind of done this and why we think it's important. You know, I was told when I was 12, and this feeds into the, the mental health side of things, I was told when I was 12 that my body was useless. And that was what was said to me. And that I, and I was told that I would be in a wheelchair by the time I was 18 and touch wood, that's not happened. And when I had my mental health, my immediate thought from that was, well, my, ment- my mind's useless, um, bar being academically clever. <laughs> um, yeah. And that is huge things to have from the age of 12 and then that knock again at the age of 20. And what's been lovely about the autism diagnosis at age 36 is that it's given me on the mental health side of things um, some permission to forgive myself and to say, you know what, this isn't actually my mental health. This is sensory overload and this is the world not being designed in the way that my mind sees things. Um, and that's, that goes for business practices. It also goes for people. You know, um, when we talk about autism in the workplace and things like that, you know, there are certain things um, that we need to do. Um, you know, I, I, people, we, we live at the coast and uh, people, I think, have like a rotor of when I'm not in the office because I ban fish and chips from the office because the smell triggers my um, autism and the smell. And I can't be in the room with this fish and chips there. Um, and, you know, there's other things as well. And I think yeah, I, I feel yeah. like I've gone like on a bit of a side tangent for this um, in some way. So I do apologize, but I'm just trying to make sure that I, I explain it to people. Um, I went through as well a, a moment when I was first diagnosed, if I kept apologizing to people all the time at work. And again, was trying not to be condescending, but I was doing mind maps and I was going, I'm really sorry if I'm going too far ahead, but I'm, I've just found out I'm autistic and I might jump certain areas. You might not know why I've jumped that way. Please just stop me. It's my fault. Just stop me. And I'll go back and I'll explain to you how I've jumped. And everybody was so lovely. They were so, so nice because they were just like, you know what? It's okay. You know, you don't need to apologize. It's fine. I will let you know if if we need to go back a step and that was really really lovely but you know at the same point you know there can be times I can be a bit blunt or a bit abrupt and and really try not to be but it can happen just the thing is I think with everybody you can anyone can be blunt and abrupt it doesn't have to be autism um but you know it, it is something that I do have to work on um for me from a a work point of view so from a traditional work being able to do my job point of view I see my autism as an asset um for the ability to go out and have drinks with everybody afterwards 
I see my autism as a negative in a sense. Um, but please do feel free to ask away, Matt, about um, how it, how I am in, in the autism side of things. Okay, well, we, again, well, thank you for being so open for a start. Um, it, it's, it's, um, it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And um, from a personal perspective, for you as a person, I mean by that, um, you know, I, I, it seems to me you're on the, the first few rungs of a very, very positive journey. Yes. Um, without any shadow of a doubt. And um, I, I would never apologise for um, uh, seeing the world in a different way. I yes. think the world would be, well, let's look, if we can take the world as a positive, as some of the things that are going on in it, mm. um, you know, we wouldn't be here today yeah. um, if, if it didn't have people who had autistic traits in it, let's be honest. And I know when we did, when we spoke about autism historically on the podcast, mm. there are some, um, some incredible people, extremely successful people, um, who um, who are autistic so yeah. you know it, it, I would personally take it as a very positive thing yes. um, and um, as I say I think you're on the beginning of a journey here which um, you know I'm pretty confident don't know you that well Catherine by the way, <laughs> but uh, I'm yeah. pretty confident it'll um, it'll be all very positive stuff and, and certainly help with the, um, the anxiety disorder yeah. or at least, make, at least it'll open up um, an understanding of why which you've just articulated really you know some of the things um, you do about the sensory overload etc cetera, etc cetera, and why they're actually happening and I think if you know I, I, it's a guess and uh, I hope it's the way I would react would be that once you know why a particular feeling is occurring then that's half the battle in in want a better expression controlling it Absolutely. Feeling more comfortable in your soul about it as well. And yeah. that, I think, would probably reduce the anxiety. So uh, more power to your elbow on that one. Um, right. OK, looking at um, the, the, the job, this is what we're talking about here with income protection, of course, and your ability to do your job. Does, does autism in its own right, um, or let's put it this way, uh, we, we're talking today about, about level one um, autism, does that stop you doing your job? No. No. End of. Um, the one thing that did, did cross my mind um, was how much of your job is actually talking to potential clients? Oh, uh, well, my, my job's just changing a little bit. Uh, so. Well, okay. I mean, that's, that's um, the way. I mean, let's, let's look at future. You know, we're talking yeah. about autism in future. So, do you mean, sorry, so do you mean clients? Or do you mean just basically my interaction with people? No, well, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking about your job. And if you could not interact with customers, yeah. what percentage would that take out of your ability to do your job? Oh, so my ability oh. to not interact with customers based upon a very... A typical <laughs> Oh, I'm gonna say. Um, let's say. Let's be precise. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. So, no, let's say a day. You know, if I spoke to customers for a full day, um, that would be that part of my week because a lot of my week now is um, training the team. Yeah. 
and um, obviously so training our new advisors and um, marketing and compliance as well as so I I do advise people but training marketing compliance is now currently kind of my some key areas for at least the next foreseeable few months okay and you, you, you does does and all of them need interaction, except compliance. I don't have to have interaction from compliance. <laughs> I could be quite blunt. That would probably suit me really well. <laughs> we should leave compliance to you, Catherine, I think. Although in saying that, I find it fascinating as well, but then maybe that's just me. Um, uh, what's I going to say? The, um, so what I'm trying to get at here is, is the fact that you feel uncomfortable. Am I right in thinking you feel uncomfortable talking to people who you don't know? No, I'm absolutely fine talking to I, Ah, ah, this is interesting. I feel very comfortable talking to people that I don't know, like clients on the phone or video calls. And I would think I'd be the same in person. So my difficulty with feeling comfortable with new people is if I'm in a social situation. Right. Because okay. business-wise, I mask. Yeah. And, and it does the fact that you know what you're talking about also help an awful lot there. Where in yeah. a social situation, you can. Be... I have no idea what to talk about. So I'm just kind exactly. of like, right, do I talk about work? Well, I can't okay. talk about work okay. because, you know, but... they're going to like me. You know? But yeah, in work, it's just like, right, well, here's. I, I, yeah. I often think of myself, and I've always said this, um, I, I kind of sometimes feel like I'm acting in different roles. So, yeah. like, yeah. in terms of like, so when I've been, when I've spoken at conferences before, and obviously some of the listeners here will have heard me speak at conferences. When I've done that, obviously they certainly don't see what's going on inside because it would seem very scary in a sense, what's going on inside yeah. how I'm feeling. But I put on the mask of presenter and I yeah. act the presenter. Yeah. And so when I'm speaking to people in terms of clients, I, in my version, how, I'm, how I can describe it is I put on the mask of advisor and then it becomes a professional and I'm just doing my job. Yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely fine. I was, I was just, uh, I suppose, again, looking at your occupation and the skill sets you needed in your occupation, does any of these conditions stop you doing it um, or, or, or hinder you doing it? And the answer to that is no, mm. I've just heard. Now, autism in its own right, it's, uh, I, I just can't get excited in terms of the risk that it presents. Mm. I think, you know, again, you have to individualise this, but I, and I will with you positive journey um which which will certainly help i think hopefully some of these certainly the generally the uh, anxiety disorder mm. so again in its own right it just doesn't cause doesn't cause me an issue the the one here that's um that i would would make me uncomfortable would be the the anxiety disorder that you have yeah. that said i think particularly with what the work that you're doing um, in, in, the, in the autism um, spectrum, if you want, um, I hope would help that. Hence, why earlier I said, um, you know, I, I would probably look to pers uh, pers put an exclusion on, but but yeah. say to you, let's review in one to two years, let's say eighteen yeah. months, something like that. And at that particular time, it would be a conversation around has all the work that you've done on it with uh, a better understanding your autism and explaining to you why you get stressed in certain, uh, anxious, sorry, in certain um, situations, because yeah. that helps you in your life. But yeah. ultimately, at the end of the day, we're, we're, you know, sorry, I don't mean to patronise you there, you yeah. will know, but, um, you know, we are looking at your job here, 
that's what the, that's what the insurance pays out on yeah. your inability to do your job and um you know the, the, the the anxiety disorder, if it got worse, potentially would. You've already talked about it. it's one of the biggest claims areas there is for for, um, for insurance companies. But you know, you, 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 a clumsy expression, but you're doing something about it. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that's interesting. I think what's interesting as well to see how what we see in a sense when we're doing the research. So we do get quite a mix. Um, in terms of the the research and obviously yeah. quite a lot of people with autism do have mental health conditions as well yeah. Um, yeah. and you know we we tend to get a mix of being told well obviously you know we might exclude you know potentially exclude mental health um, some of them say well actually you know we're not we're not concerned if it's you know the autism um, some others say well autism we're declining um you know i've got some in front of me that i can see as well where it's a when it's a mixture of asperger's and uh, mental health condition it's some of the insurers are saying well it's automatic decline for income protection which i think is quite a quite a sad situation in 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 many ways um but you know it's there's a mix though and what i'd say is whilst i'm saying that is for anybody who's listening who is um similar to myself um obviously um it's always worth asking because, you know, there are some who are saying that, but there are others who are sometimes saying, well, actually, we can potentially look at this. You know, there is likely, especially if there's a mental health involvement, there's likely to be a mental health exclusion. If there isn't any mental health uh, history there, then there could be options. One thing I would like, and I think it's really important to be clear on with this as well, is because um, we do sometimes have these uh, questions is, people come to us and they maybe do have um, a stronger health condition, not necessarily just autism, um, but, you know, a stronger health condition, which means that they're uh, in receipt of state benefits, so, you know, PIP, personal independence payment, um, or potentially even some of the, there may still be on some of the older ones where it was to do with um, disability allowance. Things like income protection are not designed to ensure those benefits. It is purely from worked income and from being in employment or self-employment um so i just think that was a quite an important thing to just clarify there at the end there matt yeah no absolutely absolutely okay then right well i think that's been really good does that help at all i think it really is helpful and i think it's really good as well to just finish on here at, sorry towards the end as well to just explain um so we've said all this this is all in relation to personal income protection if you have the ability um, to access something that's known as group income protection, it can be completely different what the outcomes are. There can be really, really favorable options. And um, quite a bit of the time, there can be options without exclusions for the pre-existing conditions. And um, that's much more specific um, advice side of things that we need to go down to we are absolutely really pushing our timing here so I don't want to I can't really go into that today but there is a group insurance um, episode out on the podcast that we did previously so please do have a listen to that if you want to know more Um, but obviously thank you everybody for listening and as always thank you so much for your insights Matt Um, I hope that today has obviously put some people's minds at ease in terms of access to insurance what they might face hopefully some favourable information. Some of it is maybe not being as favourable as people would maybe want, but we're we're trying to be as realistic as possible so that people know what to expect. And I also hope that it's really sparked some ideas for change um, with um, the insurers and reinsurers. And as always, I'm always happy to chat to people very openly um, if they do want to talk about anything, specifically any um, product developments in this area. 
Um, next time, I'm going to be back with Wai McLaughlin, and he's going to be joining me with our special guest, Catherine Betley from Grief Chat. And she's going to be talking about her company and counsellors and how they're helping people to cope through some incredibly tough times. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please drop me a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget that if you have listened to this as part of your work, you can claim a CPD certificate on the website too, thanks to our sponsors, the Opt members. Thank you again, Matt. My pleasure. Cheerio.